1: Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, the Consider podcast where we don't do the thinking for you. This is Eric with my co-host Xander. We're going to be talking to you guys today about demagogues in the history of them. And why are we doing this? Well, you may be paying attention to the United States presidential election and you may have... Some thoughts that demagogues might be gaining prominence in the United States and elsewhere, perhaps in Western Europe, and other places where we tend to expect them to gain a little more prominence. So it might be happening all over. You may be worried, and you may be thinking, gosh, I've been sharing all these things on Facebook. I've been talking to people. I'm just amazed that these demagogues have power, and I'm I'm a little concerned. How do we beat them? And of course, to be able to change something, we have to understand what's going on behind it. To be able to solve a problem, we have to understand the root cause. So today we're going to start looking into, hey, what happens when societies run into demagogues? What causes people who have a demagogic potential to gain influence in society? And we're going to do that by looking back at history, where we've seen this all play out end to end before. So we're going to go way, way back uh, to actually Athens... And Rome, the democracies that the United States was founded on, who, spoiler alert, both fell apart, by the way, in part because of the events that we're going to talk about. So, this should
3: teach us a lot about what might be happening today. So, what exactly is a demagogue? There's a couple of ways to describe it. And in popular parlance, sometimes a demagogue is described as a political leader who is using essentially effective rhetoric, but that you happen to disagree with. That said, there there is a more precise definition that I think we'll we'll try to lean on for the purposes of this particular episode. And I, I'm just going to lift actually directly from the Wikipedia definition because it is pretty exacting.
1: But you're saying for those who haven't read the Wikipedia article, it might just be that the guy who's really influential on the other team, he's totally a demagogue because, wow, look at all the stuff he's saying that I don't agree with.
3: Yeah, I think the word gets thrown along uh, around a lot, right? A demagogue is the guy who's winning influence, whose opinions or perspectives you happen to dis- disagree with. But I think right, there's... and therefore they're absurd. Exactly. How can you trust that guy? He is a demagogue, don't you know? So th- the definition that we're going to lean on is a little bit more specific than that, because we think that you need to get past you know, the rhetoric of divisiveness if you're going to try to understand these trends. So I'm just going to read this Wikipedia definition real quick for the sake of kickstarting this particular discussion. A demagogue is a political leader in a democracy who appeals to the emotions, fears, prejudices, and ignorance of the lower socioeconomic classes to gain power and promote political motives. Demagogues usually oppose deliberation and advocate immediate, violent action to address a national crisis. They accuse moderate and thoughtful opponents of weakness. Demagogues have appeared in democracies since ancient Athens, which we'll talk about. They exploit a fundamental weakness in democracy because ultimately, uh, or because ultimate power is held by the people in democracies. Nothing stops the people from giving that power to someone who appeals to the lowest common denominator of a large enough segment of the population.
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, so let's definitely post a link to this so that people can read it because I already forgot. Uh, and, uh, you know, my thought on this is that the, you know, the the national crisis thing, you know, it says violent action, which I think implies external. But I think in history, we've seen, you know, we, we've also seen demagogues rise to internal uh, and economic crises as well as security stuff. So, you know, it may not, Be necessarily a a violent reaction like war, but it may be this very intense, like we're going to throw these people in jail, or we're going to build camps and put people there, or we're going to, you know, pass laws that hose this group or something like that.
3: I think that's exactly right. So while that definition, you know, speaks specifically about violent actions, I think you can also slightly broaden the definition to include leaders who respond to the threat of a war, or perhaps just extraordinarily challenging circumstances. And that's certainly a slight adjustment of the definition that I'll use when I when I talk a little bit about ancient Rome. Yeah. Uh, so what lets a demagogue gain influence in a society? And I say influence and not just their presence, because demagogues are always there. They're always in society. Or at um, least
1: the kind of people who, yeah, the demagogic potential, yeah.
3: That's right. The, the characteristic or personality traits that allow someone to become a demagogue in certain moments in history. Now, but demagogues only get that power when social circumstances or the environment becomes a certain way. Now, what way is this? Well, demagogues tend to thrive on this tribal in-group, out-group behavior, right? When society becomes afraid or they feel some sort of pain or hatred, and that can be of the security type that you talked about, but it can also be of the economic type, and that pain can either be material or immaterial. You know, it could be something that's real, it could be something that's imagined, or it could be, you know, appealing to a society's pride. The, the demagogue, in the definition that I'm going to try to use, ultimately plays on this in-group, out-group behavior driven by all of these different um, sort of trends that are becoming increasingly prevalent in a society.
1: Yeah, and I guess, I mean, my, my thought on this is that, you know, I, I research this stuff a lot, and I one of the books I love is Jonathan Hates, uh The Righteous Mind, uh, I also love moral tribes. I mean, really, the in-group out-group theory of forming into factions, as such, is really powerful. And there's, but but it's a constant in human nature, right? And the, you know, so one of the I think the questions asked is we say there's always this potential for us to form factions and and go to war in politics rather than talk about you know deliberate. And I think the the thing that I have seen that has changed most or that the, the temporal thing, right? The thing, the event that has been most constant when demagogues rise is that people lose faith in the system. So normally you have a democracy that has a system where, you know, you have, you need two thirds majority to do X and you have a constitution that stops you from doing Y and you have a balance of power and people deliberate. And, and when You don't get your way, you go, "Uh, it's kind of ridiculous that people disagree with me, but that's how it works, so fine. And I'll say, I told you so later. But that requires some faith in the system where you say, it's gonna work out and we wanna keep this system around. And I think at some point, people, there's some crisis, and this is why we talk about crisis. I think the crisis causes people to lose faith in the system. They say the system can't handle it and we just need a strong leader who's going to come in and do it right. And just make things work and save us. Um, and so, you know, we can feel some pain, some fear, some lack of pride, some, something like that, that needs to be resolved. So, uh, you know, I'll be talking about Cleon where, uh, this is in ancient Athens, where they faced a pretty, uh, they, they faced a form of national crisis, uh, that was sort of falling apart, and it looked like the, the current system had tried to handle it and failed, um, and so it gave this guy Cleon a chance to walk in and, and take over. And, and Xander, you're talking about Gracchus, right?
3: Sure. So I'll be talking about this guy named Tiberius Gracchus, who was arguably, I mean, I'm going to argue he was a demagogue in the late Roman Republic, whose actions were in part essentially led to the period of civil wars that brought down the Republic.
1: Oh yeah. Cool. So if we, so I'll start with Gracchus. So we're, again, we're looking for what's the crisis. uh, What's the pain or fear people are feeling in the crisis. Where does the system break down? And, and so we go back, we roll back to ancient Athens. We're in the Peloponnesian war. So this is after the Persian wars. When, if you've seen the movie 300, uh, they fight back the Persians, I guess in the latter, in the, whatever the sequel is, and they actually fight back the Persians. Uh, and you might have heard of this guy Pericles, who rises to the top. Really famous general in that war. Smart guy, you know, generally renowned by his contemporaries, a really smart guy, great leader.
3: And... Eric, let, let me just interrupt you one oh, second, because yeah. I think before you got into it, you said you are going to be talking about Gracchus now and hop back to ancient Athens. You're actually going to be talking about Cleon right now in ancient Athens, right? Sorry.
1: Yeah, I'm talking about Cleon, and you'll be talking about Gracchus. Great. Yeah. Thanks. So we're in ancient Athens. Uh, Pericles is in charge. Contemporaries like him. For weird geopolitical reasons, the uh, the Athenians and the Peloponnese, who are essentially Sparta and their buddies uh, go to war. And there's a lot of weird alliances going on. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, although Thucydides' book is a really great one. What happens is the Athenians are not that powerful on land, but they're very powerful by sea. And the Spartans, of course, are just unmatched on land. I mean, they're terrifying. And so the Spartans invade uh, Attica, which is where Athens is, and they just take all the food and the Athenians are hiding in Athens. They're just going to wait out the Spartans as their ships run around causing trouble. And so you've got a whole bunch of Athenians that are just stuck inside Athens and it's hot and they're grumpy and there's a plague. Uh, it's just, it's terrible miserable conditions. People are, people's tempers are hot. And um, so and, and in Athens, one of the weird things was that in democracy, the stakes were pretty high because they didn't have a whole lot of checks or balances. You could really do anything. So if you screwed up uh, or if people thought you screwed up, they could just jail you or exile you or kill you. Um, so that's how they killed Socrates. They said, you know, the, the assembly, the, demo, the Democratic Assembly said, we're tired of you. Die. And so what what often happened was this meant there were a lot of like fights in the assembly. Anyway. So Pericles gets a lot of heat from this guy named Cleon, very McCarthy-like guy. McCarthy, of course, being uh, the senator from the 1950s in the United States that said that communists were everywhere in the State Department. Um, probably a, a good modern demagogue, a good modern demagogue example. But he was he was one of the the big opponents of Pericles, and he said we gotta take the fight to the Spartans. And the reason that we're not taking the fight to the Spartans is because of Pericles' faction a bunch of nobility. And it was also the case that, given that the Spartans were burning all the crops, there was a huge economic meltdown. The aristocracy, uh, you might call them the 1%, didn't, they, they, they were okay, right? They didn't, they got hurt, but they weren't starving, and there were people starving, because the crops are burned by the Spartans. And so he was saying, look, Pericles and his 1% They're, um, you know, they're cowards and they're, you know, they're benefiting from this because prices have gone up because there's a shortage and they can sell stuff. Uh, everything's great for them. They're orchestrating this. They're bad guys. If you elect Cleon, I'm going to make Athens great again. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring us back to power. I'm tired of being, you know, I'm tired of being beat left and right by the Spartans. I'm going to stick it to them. You know, I'm gonna build a fleet and make them pay for it. I mean, all that stuff. And he gets a lot of support, but it's not until Pericles dies that, that he ends up taking power. Um, and he, yeah, you know, he gets elected after Pericles dies, and he takes over in the um, in the war. And so, you know, we see that his style is he's very bullying, he's very rough, unpolished. He appealed to the masses, many of whom got to vote, many of whom didn't because you had to be landowning, but there were small landowners. He was very anti-elite when the masses were feeling pain in an economic situation and the elite were feeling less pain and, in fact, selling their goods for more money. He turned them into a an enemy group. And he actually had two enemy groups, right? One was internal. One was external. So the internal enemy group were these rich aristocrats who were manipulating the economy and manipulating the war and cowards and... Uh, in league with Pericles, who's also a coward. Uh, you might say a loser. And you had an external enemy group who looked different. They sounded different, their religion was a little different. They were weird. They were scary. We felt like we were under assault by them all the time. And in that case they were. But to a large extent, it was a matter of pride because they knew that the, you know, kind of weighted out strategy often worked like against the Persians in the past but it was, you know, we can't let the Spartans beat us. We can't let them make us look bad. So Cleon did, you might see some parallels to some of the modern democracies in the United States in Western Europe. And Cleon was very successful using these tactics of creating internal enemy groups and external enemy groups that appealed to the common man. And the reason that the moment that sparks this is the economic and military crisis caused by Sparta's invasion of Attica. Uh, when prices go through the roof, there's a loss of goods, and Athens is safe but surrounded, and also there's a plague. So a lot of stuff goes wrong. Pericles tried his shot. Things were getting pretty ugly, and people wanted that quick change, that guy that promised going to make Athens great again, going to fix all the problems, going to stick it to the Spartans and take all their money and get them to pay for food. So I think a really classic example. And then after that, what happened was Cleon was able to amass a ton of power and a ton of support, really do anything he wanted, and he actually led Athens to just total disaster. Luckily, the best thing he does for Athens is die in a (laughs) naval battle. Uh, Just the best thing he could have done. Two years later, he goes off, he dies. And uh, this guy named Alcibiades takes over, possibly another demagogue, also makes some bad decisions. But at this point, what we've seen is a break, a permanent breakdown of consensus democracy by the Athenians and a permanent rise of factional democracy where with Alcibiades, for example, people, there's a faction that uh, because remember that people can vote on pretty much anything he goes off as a general and there's a faction that just votes to recall and put him on trial for a trumped up crime because they didn't like him. Uh, And this stuff goes back and forth with Athens. Ultimately the breakdown of democracy in Athens really damages their ability to fight the war against Sparta. Uh, And in the end, after 27 years, they have a disaster in Sicily, Sparta wins and just says Athens retire to your crap. And, Rules them for a while. But then when Sparta leaves, Athens decides democracy failed us. We're just going to have some strong men rule us. Then there's the years of the 30 tyrants and kind of a... And that's sort of the end of the Athenian golden age. It's over. And Philip the Macedon shows up and takes over and it's all bad. So anyway, the beginning and, and of And who's the Philip's
3: son there, Eric? Oh,
1: Alexander the Great, right? So right. these Macedonians to the north who were... Uh, kind of barba- almost barbarians end up invading because Athens becomes so weak, and uh, they take over and end up end up ruling by kind of imperial edict rather than by democracy. And uh, yeah, the golden age of Athens is over, and the rep- the democracy is gone forever. Really sad.
3: What's What's interesting to point out about Athenian democracy. And, you know, when when we decided to do this podcast on this particular topic, I went out and got uh, one of those great courses, lecture series on the Peloponnesian War. So I've been trying to study up a little bit more over the course of the last week and a half. But something that's, I think, an important distinction to draw between Athenian democracy and, say, modern-day American republicanism is that Athenian democracy was really a direct democracy in a way that we don't have nowadays, right? So you went to the assembly, and the assembly was it. The assembly was sovereign. There were... Right, and the assembly was
1: the the, land-owning dudes that lived in Athens.
3: Exactly. So the assembly really had ultimate say in all major important decisions, but thousands of people would go to the assembly, and especially in Athens, take these votes, which meant that Someone who did want to take advantage of a loss of faith in the system, what we're calling demagogues, could go and appeal directly to the sovereign body and use the art of rhetoric, essentially, to appeal to people's emotions and pains and fears and hatreds right there and get them to make a decision right on the spot.
1: Yeah, exactly. No checks and balances, no balance of power, no... uh... No representatives whose, you know, kind of whose job it is to be experts and professionals in government. Uh, Yeah, people just ruled directly. And you imagine if you got everyone riled up one day, they could vote for anything, like killing Socrates or recalling Alcibiades in the middle of a campaign or, I mean, all and they just exiled people left and right. So it was a, what was interesting about Athens is sort of the first experiment in democracy was they hadn't figured out some of the stuff we'd figured out. I mean, they, they learned it the hard way, and we luckily learned from them. But it was a democracy that was very vulnerable. That was probably the mo- one of the most vulnerable in history to demagoguery, where you just needed a little thing to go wrong. Not th- and, and, and yeah, Athens being invaded was not a little thing by modern standards, but they'd been invaded by, before by scarier people, the Persians, Much bigger armies, you know, and all sorts of stuff. But you just needed the right kind of little thing to go wrong in order for it all to come crashing down.
2: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
3: and this is interesting to me because it seems like you know people this is an example of how people can learn from history the founders of the united states for example knew this, right? They were aware of the history of the classical age and saw the failure of the Athenian democracy. It said, okay, well, direct representative uh, representation like that, there are weaknesses to that form of a democracy. So what other forms of government can we learn from to inform and influence the governing structures that we're going to establish in this new country? And really, if you want to call them our founding fathers, really pulled more from the late Roman Republic in terms of how to structure our society more than the Athenian democracy, at least directly. And why is this? Well, Rome originally way back in the day, it was a monarchy that fell. The last King, the, the Tarquins fell and a Republic was established. That Republic was for a long, long time ruled by the aristocracy, the oligarchy, depending on what you want to call it. Over time, this Um, the what were called the plebeians, essentially the common class, really began to take power for themselves little by little by little over hundreds of years to the point where when you get to this uh, time period where I'm going to talk about, which is about 133 BC, both the Senate, full of the aristocracy, they were called the patricians, and this separate governing body called the assembly existed, and the assembly was essentially for the plebeians and they had their own representatives there. They were called tribunes of the plebs and this assembly and the Senate, you know, didn't agree on a lot of things because obviously they were voting uh, from the perspectives and representing different groups of society. So this guy I'm going to talk about, his name is Tiberius Gracchus and before
1: we wa- get to him. Just, sure. I have a quick question on the structure here. So the, for a while there was no assembly. it was the the quote unquote Republic was just the Senate of the aristocracy
3: That's correct for the first I okay. think couple hundred years
1: yeah, so sort of an aristocracy for a while that was called a republic because there wasn't a good distinction, I guess or the you know this idea that every man had a had a say and then the the plebs kind of introduced the almost the House
3: of Commons. Yeah, there are definitely similarities between sort of the British parliamentary system and the late Roman Republic certainly now by the time cool. we Thanks. yeah by the time we get to the late uh, Rome, the late Roman Republic which I mean essentially the last hundred years of the Roman Republic before it becomes the Roman Empire there's Is this that guy spoiler type alert
1: for what's gonna happen
3: ah I, I, I guess it could be the Roman Republic falls there's this guy. You you might have heard of him. His name's Julius Caesar. And he essentially takes power in the late first century BC. And at that point, Rome had essentially been in a period of civil wars for 100 years, starting right about at the time of Tiberius Gracchus that I'm going to talk about. But the end of that that century of really intense civil strife resulted in such a complete and utter breakdown of all the systems that were used for hundreds of years to govern ancient Rome that you needed some guy like Julius Caesar to come in and declare himself dictator for life. And, you know, the the Roman Republic had this institution for dictatorship, and I don't want to digress too far, so this existed, and people would be essentially elected dictator for periods of six months at a time with approval of the Senate during really terrifying times, like the invasion of Hannibal during the Second Punic War. But Caesar gets to power, he comes in, he crosses the Rubicon with his military, and says, no, I'm dictator for life, and he dissolves all of the systems of checks and balances that had de- developed over hundreds of years. And that was the end of the Roman Republic, and there was no... Representative form of government like that that really existed certainly in Western society for almost another 2,000 years. So, you know, we're talking about these things because we think there are lessons to be learned from how the breakdown in that last hundred years of civil wars uh, played out, right? So, Tiberius Gracchus, who was this guy? Well, he was a war veteran, he was in the Third Punic War. He scaled the walls of Carthage uh, when Carthage was razed to the ground by the Romans. And by 133 BC, he had become sort of a well-respected military leader, but also a tribune of the plebs. One of these guys, as I mentioned, who was a representative in this assembly, this body of governance for the people. And where Cleon in, in Athens that Eric talked about was really kind of responding to like a quick ignition situation like the spartans are waging war we need to do something right now tiberius gracchus was appealing more to you know what i'll call sort of a a slow burn a gradual problem that accumulated more and more uh, pain for the lower classes as time went on because what essentially was happening was during this period of war uh, the third punic war and some wars that immediately followed it there were levies, there were drafts for Roman citizens, and they would have to go away and fight for years at a time. And this was still a time in history when the average Roman had a small farm. They were in many ways subsistence farmers. They supported uh, their family. And when the, the men were drafted to go fight in war, their wife and children had to essentially support these farms. And they failed a lot. They went bankrupt and the only way out was essentially to sell their land to these massive land-owning aristocrats. And as time went on, these these Roman men who were drafted and had to go fight wars came back to nothing. Their land was gone. The rich had become richer. The 1% became more powerful, while the average Roman, the soldiers, uh, came back to nothing. They were unemployed and had to crowd Athens.
1: Right, and... And for and for context, before stuff like the Punic Wars, the Romans were so busy busy just fighting nearby that people didn't have to be gone for years. What you'd actually do is you'd go, Okay, Romans, turn your plowshares into swords and they'd go, Ah, okay. And then go and they'd kick some butt and then they'd come back pretty quickly, uh, often in time for harvest if they were able. Exactly. So this wasn't happening this wasn't happening early in the Republic. So what happened was it was it was like late when they started, you know, their foreign ventures.
3: That's right. There were periods of the year when wars were waged. And that was generally during the summers. And, you know, come fall, these people would come back and harvest their land. This all changed. And people came back to nothing. They came back to their families who had been, fallen and become destitute. And a class of society that had become even more wealthy and even more powerful at the expense of... of essentially the common class. So this is the environment that we find ourselves in when we talk about this guy, Tiberius Gracchus. Now he was himself an aristocrat from a wealthy, well-connected family. Um, and after his war service, he went into politics and became actually a strong advocate for the people. And you see this in Rome and today a lot, just because you're from a wealthier privileged background doesn't mean that you're not gaining power by appealing to the people. So that's how he really got his start in Roman politics. So, so Tiberius Gracchus comes back into this environment where people have lost their land and they're really struggling. And he wants to go to the assembly, the House of Commons for the People, and introduce a bill that would effectively redistribute a very large quantity of the land that wealthy property owners had been acquiring basically from the plebeians, these people who were forced to go away and fight. But being an astute politician, Tiberius Gracchus knew that the Senate, full of aristocrats, would never approve such a bill, which is why he went directly to the assembly. He bypassed the Senate, didn't even get their uh, blessing for it. Was Was there a constitution where you needed both houses to vote
1: for something? Or maybe there wasn't a constitution? It was just one of those, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it's like a
3: legal move or what? As I understand it, it was not an illegal maneuver, and it wasn't even against tradition. And and this is sort of a big distinction, again, between the Roman Republic and the American Republic, because we have a constitution today, right? Rome didn't. They essentially operated on tradition, this Roman tradition, what it meant to work within the confines of these structures. They did not have a constitution.
1: Okay, so that's another vulnerability. That's interesting and probably something we learned from.
3: It seems like it, right? Uh, Which is in a way positive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm maybe spoiling a bit. So go ahead. Sorry.
3: Sure. So this this was the point is what Tiberius Gracchus did by going directly to the people and not appealing at all to the Senate was not an illegal maneuver, and from what I understand, not even against tradition, but it nonetheless infuriated the Senate, obviously, right? Because they didn't want to give up all this land that they had accumulated. But Gracchus gained power and influence by appealing to the 99% and talking about how the 1% was out to get them. I'm, I don't speak Latin, but I'm pretty sure Tiberius Gracchus could have very easily appealed to the Roman plebeians with you know the slogan, I am the 99%. Oh, for my economic policy, I'll stick it to the 1%. Now, the Assembly, of course, wanted to approve this bill, right, because it was comprised of people who had been hurt over time by the accumulation of land by the patricians. However, the Senate, the aristocracy, um, didn't want this to happen. So they convinced another representative, a tribune of the pledge, in the People's Assembly to essentially veto the bill. And this was one of the checks and balances that did exist in the Roman system is that tribunes who represented the people in the assembly had the right of a veto.
1: And so the assembly had a lot of a lot of people but only some were
3: tribunes. Exactly, it was more of a representative system than Athens. Okay. So this guy who the Senate convinces to oppose Tiberius Gracchus his name is Marcus Octavius and any since any tribune can veto this bill they just needed their one guy and he did he prevented the land act the agrarian act from passing which infuriated Gracchus obviously right because he was essentially using this bill to bypass the consent of the aristocrats in society and gain power by appealing directly to the people so he tried to have this guy Marcus Octavius deposed from the assembly arguing that he had abdicated his duty to the people to instead favor the, the patricians in the Senate when really his job was to represent the people in the assembly. But this move did kind of freak out Tiberius Gracchus's followers. You know, they said you can't just throw someone out. That's not that's not the way the system works, right? So he 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 ended up taking another tack. Tiberius Gracchus, since he could not depose of Marcus Octavius, decided that he would use his own veto power on daily ceremonial rites. And the, the tribunes in the assembly were essentially asked uh, every day uh, for normal procedural things, like if they would allow for key public buildings to open and allow the markets and temples to start functioning. And by using his veto, he Tiberius Gracchus effectively shut down the entire city of Rome, all business, all public functions, everything, including trade and production, and, and tried to use this leverage to force the Senate assembly to pass his law. That's bonkers. It's kind of crazy to think about, right? It's if I don't get my way, I, I am instilled by the power of the people and I will stop everything from happening. I will divide the society and oppose you at all costs. Now I've never seen that happen recently. Have you?
1: Well, I, I don't think there's. I can't imagine a modern Western liberal democracy where any one person has anything close to that kind of power, right? Where you can, where I mean, one guy is able to shut down the market and temples just by going, no, nope, no, don't feel like opening them today, and no one, can, no one's able to do anything about it. I mean, probably it's just sure to stab the guy, which I know, you know, becomes tradition later. But that's, it's just, it's its a its a design that's just so sensitive, right? So ripe for one crazy dude to hijack it like that.
3: Exactly. And he was effectively able to do it because he appealed directly to the pain and fear and frustration and increasingly the hatred felt among the common class uh, due to what you could argue were there were true grievances that they had against what the aristocracy was doing to them. But the way in which Tiberius Gracchus accumulated and then used his power, shut down Rome and created a level of divisiveness that led directly to this hundred year long period of civil war, which was unlike anything that Rome had really seen before then. So, I mean, long story short, Uh, Tiberius Gracchus starts shutting down Rome. People become frustrated. And really, for the first time in Roman politics, violence is introduced directly into the mix, and he's killed. And this obviously pisses off all of his supporters and sort of wedges, if I can use that term, one class of society against another. And that wedge really never disappears in the Roman Republic. And that's really the beginning of the end for the representative systems in that society. Yeah.
1: But I mean, OK, so I guess I'd said, why isn't anyone stabbing this guy? But I guess they did. And, you know, I think one of the the this is Eric's opinion here, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about Graukas is that it seems, you know, it sort of seems like and it, it's easy to portray the aristocracy is actually the villains in this. But if you think about it, when the state has demanded by levy, you know, by conscription that these these men who work these farms are gone for two or three years and someone's destitute. I mean, if you don't have a social, a safety net or a welfare system of any sort, you know, and the wife starts shopping around trying to sell her land, like, you know, the, the aristocrats have one of three options, like one, let them starve two, buy the land or three become the, you know, champions of charity. And I, you know, number three would have been great. And it's one of those things where I think that it sounds like Gracchus did a great job of saying, hey, there's this unfortunate circumstance that, by the way, was was state policy of sending troops away for three years and not thinking about what the heck was going to happen in their farms. And then kind of economic forces took over because we took away their, you know, their uh, ability to make ends meet. And so people sold off their stuff. And he was able to take that and say, uh, instead of saying, uh, "God, government policy terrible, gotta change it and take responsibility," he was able to say, "Ah, it's the rich guys' fault, right? They ended up, they, they did well in all this. They ended up with all the land, so they're the bad guys. Let's go get them."
3: Yeah, exactly. I think what's really interesting to me about the example of Tiberius Gracchus and the land reforms in ancient Rome is that you could very well argue that these people had legitimate grievances. I mean, could you imagine going and fighting a war for your country to come back for nothing? The The issue is how Tiberius Gracchus accumulated and wielded the power by essentially exploiting the fear and hatred that had developed among the common class. So, yeah. so I, think, I, I think there's a lesson to be learned from the example of Tiberius Gracchus in ancient Rome, and it's something along the lines of, you know, if a society does become divided enough where demagogues can begin to wield this degree of power where they can shut down the way the system's supposed supposed to, to operate, there may in fact be sort of these no turning back points in society. And, you know, if we're saying that demagogues essentially acquire the ability to influence politics when people lose faith in the system— there may be this no turning back point where reinstilling faith and confidence in the system may no longer be possible so if if what we're saying is lack of faith in the system is a leading driver to this factionalism that we saw in Athens and ancient Rome and therefore the demagoguery that resulted from it then this no going back point could create uh, and did create in both of these examples sort of this downward cycle, even more demagoguery, where to overcome one demagogue, you need another demagogue from the other faction. And this increased the likelihood of, you know, as as Shakespeare put it, domestic fury and fierce civil strife. And I think this is worth avoiding.
1: Ooh, Shakespeare. Nice work. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, the... Yeah, I'm wondering if I disagree here, because is there, I mean, are there ways to turn it back? And I guess it requires, the hard part about turning it back is it requires the same kind of, because what you've done is you set a precedent, right? you said, oh, well, this guy has his power now. And that that means everyone that's in that position has his power now. Because, you know, the old check and balance, the old limitation is gone because we've, we've let people get away with it. So what you need is some force to take it back or, or reinforce the old, the old tradition or the old rule, because, of course, constitutions are just paper, and if everyone says, ah, uh, we don't care anymore, just do whatever, we really demand it, you get 90% of people to do that. I mean, you can make changes to the constitution, but in short, as soon as people stop caring about the thing, how do you get... How do you get them to care about it again and, and enforce other people following it once they've gotten away with it in the past? And I guess I, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you can go any direction, but in the degrading direction. I have to think about that. I'm sure someone's written about this, but I haven't read it,
3: whatever it is. Anyway, it seems bleak now that I've thought about it. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a depressing thought to have that there are you know, points at which, if not impossible to turn back to the credibility of prior institutions, it at least becomes extremely more difficult to do so. Because that could imply that by the time you start seeing these trends, it's you've already gotten to a point where it's harder to turn them back, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Be- yeah. It's it's a lot harder to take the genie or put the genie back in the bottle and take him out. Because, of course, with guys like Tiberius, they sort of... You see that they got away, you know, I mean, eventually he got killed by a mob, which is a pretty good deterrent, but he was able to just say, okay, I'm shutting everything down now. And because he had whipped up all this support that people were like, yeah, yeah, get him. When of course everything was just falling apart in Rome. And, you know, so there wasn't any structural way to stop him, but people, you know, people let him do it and... I, what, you know, what do you, how do you stop a guy like that other than through either violence
3: or another strongman
1: by accumulating power?
3: Yeah, really scary stuff. And that That's exactly what happened. Once T- Tiberius Gracchus died, his brother kind of grabbed the torch, Gaius Gracchus. And a couple of decades after that, you had the wars between Marius and Sulla. And, I mean, basically what happened is Tiberius Gracchus cemented these factions that existed through to Julius Caesar, who is essentially in a way the inheritor of the faction created by Tiberius Gracchus who brought down the Republic. Because you you can't always be sure that the demagogue who gains his influence and power from one class always at the end of the day is going to do what's best for them. And he doesn't have other selfish reasons for getting that power. But I, I mentioned that the The plebeians had legitimate grievances, and I think a lot of people might be saying, "Well, yeah, but what what can you do when you you need to take action? Sometimes you need to defend the underprivileged, and I think that's definitely true." So I think, I, yeah, of course, what, what's useful in in a conversation like this is pointing to a time when the underprivileged or the, the common class has been benefited by a leader who was not a demagogue. And I just read about. It was in the most recent edition of Foreign Affairs, which is discussing inequality in a good amount of depth, a couple of great articles, talking about President Lula from Brazil, who was in power right before the current president, Dilma Rousseff, and he... I've never heard of this person. Really? Oh, man. No, I'm. this is really exciting. I get a history lesson right now. This guy was super interesting because he came from a very poor background, and he worked, I think it was some sort of manufacturing job or textile job for a while, but he eventually came into his own as a leader of the Workers' Party in Brazil, and he kind of was a demagogue for a while. And when he started getting to the upper echelons of power in Brazil, people were afraid of him. The elite were afraid that he was going to redistribute wealth and power. There was capital flight from Brazil as international investors pulled their money out for fear of, of what sorts of policies Lula would implement.
1: Ooh, maybe maybe there's a, a conservative force against demagoguery that gets people to turn money. You go, hey, look, keep this up, money's going to be gone. Everyone goes, oh, oh, god, okay, hmm, maybe
3: we should maybe we should take a step back a little bit. That's really interesting. Can you use positive economic the power of or... globalization? Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something to chew on a little bit. I mean, I I had not thought about that in any grave depth, but maybe economic policy can be a check against these sorts of larger historical trends, huh? Yeah.
1: Although maybe Venezuela is a counterexample. I'm sorry I'm interrupting, but maybe Venezuela is a counterexample because Chavez and Maduro, despite being a consistent disaster for Venezuela economically— and everyone's saying, Oh God, you're just nationalizing all our stuff Well, we're out of here, they kind of stayed in power. Uh, so so maybe yeah. it's a it can be a downward spiral instead, where you gain dictatorial power by being a demagogue and being, Oh yeah, it's all the rich yeah, it's capitalism's fault, right? Rich people and foreign powers in America and all these all these evil guys. And then you you know well, the history of Venezuela is interesting, but basically Chavez did a bunch of stupid stuff and then blamed everyone else. And everyone was like, okay, yeah, it's definitely everyone else, not you.
3: Yeah, I think no. it probably could go either way. And there's a lot of research on the impact of neg- negative economic statecrafts, so essentially san- sanctions and policies of this sort that do really create a rally around the flag effect for leaders in those sanctioned countries. Yeah, because it's a, it's like
1: almost an act of war. So, I, So I was thinking less about sanctions and more just about Oh, gosh, this thing is having negative economic consequences somewhat naturally, like in the case of Brazil. Anyway, speaking of which, so apparently there were uh, the wealthy people and international investors were fleeing the country, and then something happened?
3: Yeah, so Lula, won. he came to power, and he took a, a tour of the country and saw, you know, a lot. He interacted with a broader array of the Brazilian populace, and he really ever had before. And he came to the realization that if he was going to be able to govern effectively, he was going to have to govern for everyone in the country and not just one class because uh, that would have essentially lead to this sort of factionalism that we've been talking about. So this drove Lula to become more of a moderate, but he proposed a policy, an anti-poverty program, and it's called Bolsa Familia, that was so unusually effective that 63 countries around the world have by now tried to copy it in one form or another. Now, yeah, yeah. Brazil now has public institutions to accept diplomats and economic uh, personnel from around the country to train them in how Bolsa Familiar worked. You mean from around the world? Uh, Yes, from around the the world, world, sorry, Yeah.
1: yeah. Have we sent anyone? It sounds like a good
3: idea, I don't know. I don't. I don't think we. I don't know if we have actually.
1: Yeah. Actually, before I say it sounds like a good, I'm gonna look it up on Wikipedia. Just because everyone likes something doesn't
3: necessarily mean it was clever. But. And you have to keep in mind that more the de- research there. Yeah, there is more, and and you have to keep in mind that the degree of inequality and poverty that existed in Brazil was far and above e- yeah. anything that we're seeing in the United States right now. That's fair. But a big part of the reason that at least. I've read that Bolsa Familia was so effective is because essentially it was direct cash transfers to the poor, which, for decades, people in the charitable giving sir in charitable charitable giving circles were against because they thought that you know this money could just be squandered. But Lula's premise, and you know this is backed by research, it wasn't just one guy was saying, well, who knows how better to spend incremental dollars for the poor than the poor themselves? So that's essentially what Bolsa Familia did, and it 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 appealed both to the poor and the rich. Because this method of distributing cash to people who needed it actually had such little overhead, so little bureaucratic red tape relative yeah. to other, other sorts of giving, that it just didn't take that much of GDP. It was something like a half a percent. So the rich didn't care.
0: What?
3: It, yeah. It, wow. It's unreal, right? Um, and there's a lot of research showing that these direct cash transfers are actually really effective and powerful. There's a charitable organization called Give Directly that does this. And there's a lot of research about give directly on a website called givewell.org if you want to learn more about it. And when you say this, this is
1: in contrast to stuff like, okay, we're going to give you food stamps and public housing and Medicare or Medicaid. Exactly. Instead of all that, it's just, here's a check. Here's a paycheck. Interesting. Uh, We should do a podcast on that, maybe. I'd be down. Okay. Because I don't think we even think about it much in the United States. You know, some people say expand certain welfare, this, that, but you know, scrap it all and just make it cash.
3: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, one side of the aisle argues that, well, just giving cash away essentially removes all accountability. And Bolsa Familia implemented certain ways to track uh, individuals who were receiving the cash from the program. But there, there are no bureaucratic or very few bureaucratic institutions necessary to just distribute cash directly. And that's what Bolsa Familia did. Um, it took a tiny portion of GDP. It did not threaten the elite it has reduced inequality substantially in Brazil and actually boosted consumer spending because now the poor have more money to spend. Um, everyone's happy. And it was essentially accomplished by a leader who realized that, by creating, that creating factions would have been counterproductive to the end goal, which was actually benefiting uh, not just the underprivileged, but his entire society. Yeah,
1: and I think the other, what's interesting is, like, let's say that you're running for, you know, let's let's say that you're listening to Reconsider, you're running for leadership of a Western country, and if you are, please write us, it's uh, stc at somethingtoconsidermovement.com, we would love to hear from you and advise you, but let's say you're listening and you want to run a country, and, you know, consider that in both of the cases of Cleon and, god, what's his name?
3: Tiberius Gracchus. Gracchus.
1: Yes, in both consider in both of the cases of Cleon and Gracchus, their faction fell and everything was just totally reversed. And by the way, they died. And I think one of the interesting things about the short sightedness and folly of demagoguery and factionalism is that and, and and focusing on a faction or focusing on you know using wedging or using divisiveness and just trying to rally one party against another is that the other side is going to get power at some point and come back and they're going to just reverse everything because you've used, you know, you've used the slim or even large majority you've had to justify huge power and huge changes. And then you're going to lose it at some point. It always happens. And then, except maybe the people's Republic of China, I don't know, but they, you know, anyway, but then it's all just gonna come back. And maybe more, because you've created this group that now hates you. So you know, it just seems like such a short term thing, and this Lula guy I'm guessing Bolsa Familia is still a thing and everyone's yes. still in favor of it. Yeah. Um, much more of a Denmark kind
3: of thing, or you know, well, sort of I, kind of consensus building. I I think your point about the fall of factions is, is super spot on and it's uh you need to look no further than the issue of executive orders in the US right now and people talk about you know executive power creep because once your guy's in office you don't mind him overstepping the rules a little bit because you just need someone to get these things done always forgetting that that creep sets precedent for when your guy loses power
1: mm yeah yeah Right. So when someone says, I'm just going to do this myself and we go, yeah, do it. Then the other guy can just come back and say, oh, I'm allowed to just do these things. I'm like, cool. Yeah, I'll just do it. Interesting. Yeah. So and that's uh, maybe coming full circle. You know, that's what we're you know, and, and that's, of course, the stuff that we're thinking about both over both over the past 16 years and, you know, in the coming election where the stakes feel very emotionally, very high. Uh, A lot of people are proposing some really sweeping changes and, you know, trying to, you know, trying to, trying to impart uh, do do this through creating or or framing at least enemy groups and getting their potential voters excited about, uh, or, you know, excited in a, Emotional way, like fear, fear, or frustration, or anger, or hatred. Way of uh, of supporting these sweeping changes that way. Totally. I, I think that I really love your Lula example because it's just such a it's just such a brilliant counterpoint. Because I think listening to Gracchus, you go like, well, what else could the guy have done? And it, Lula seems to imply to us that, well, there's got to be, you know, because I think with the Cleon example, it was pretty obvious that the guy was just a power-hungry maniac, and it seemed like Gracchus was trying to do what he thought was right, and I think that a lot of demagogues do that, like maybe, I think McCarthy honestly thought that the State Department was full of communists, and that was scary, and the Venona papers released in 95 suggest he might have been right about some of it, but it, it seemed like he was sincere And Grokka seems sincere, but it all kind of went to hell. And so what do you need, you know, so you can have demagogues that are sincere and not just, you know, not just blowhards looking for, looking to enrich themselves. And what can you do differently? This seems just like such a, such a great model.
3: Yeah, I I think maybe uh, a greater discussion there at some point is certainly, uh, certainly warranted. Now, as, as we kind of come to the end of, of this particular discussion, I, I'd, start, I'd like to close with by posing a couple of questions to you sort of about this, this issue and get your thoughts on it uh, sort of to close out the uh, discussion. Um, so if, you know, if de- demagoguery is you know, the indication of this lack of faith in the system. And we've talked about how we're, while it might not be impossible to turn back, it becomes increasingly more difficult once factions come about and society becomes divided like in ancient Rome and Athens. How do you think we can, you know, prevent ourselves as a contemporary society from getting to that point? Oh, geez.
1: Well, you know, I think some of the stuff we've alluded to before about the vulnerability of the Greek and Roman republics, you know, suggest that some of the stuff that our founding fathers did by building strong checks and balances, you know, stuff that very deliberately, if you read the Federalist Papers was designed to sort of slow us down, let us cool our heads, cool our heels a little bit before we take action, you know, which can be frustrating, can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, I think, you know, the Obama's, um, President Obama and his supporters have often expressed frustration that uh, the Congress is just stopping us from doing anything. And that's to some extent by design to to slow us down. Uh, so some of that is in some of that is in design. Right. You build enough structural checks and balances, not and they didn't just say, hey, you're not allowed to do X, Y, Z. But the founding fathers said, hey, we're going to set up these different branches of government to all. With we, each with some power that are in direct opposition to each other to actually enforce that. And, you know, you said there's to some extent there's executive power creep, so you're starting to lose some of the structural dampers, right, or breaks or friction that some of the, some of the yeah friction that that keeps demagogues from being able to take advantage of at least a very quick incident or quick. Uh, crisis like Cleon. Um, so some of those are starting to go away. So how do you reassert some of those forces? I mean, to some extent, you need—you uh, might need the Supreme Court to step in to start saying, hey, this stuff's unconstitutional, XYZ, but that often requires popular support for that to happen. And you know that's, that's hard to do because most people tend to be excited about a particular Policy getting done, rather than just limiting executive power. So how do you how do you get the public largely excited about that? Oh, gosh, it's hard. I mean, I so I kind of want to say you know know your history, <laughs> and so hey, every you know get your friends to listen to this episode, um, especially the ones that you worry might be supporting a demagogue or two. But uh, you know how do you do it in general? I think that you need you need people to see and to feel the pain of factionalism, of overabundance of power in a single person, uh, especially that's gained it through demagoguery. And I think you need that pain to sort of teach a lesson to make people go, hey, we got we to gotta turn back. And uh, hopefully it's not the kind of pain that You know, the ancient Greeks went through the Romans, you know, Nazi Germany, uh, you know, Hitler obviously being a demagogue there. Hopefully, they don't have to go through that kind of pain. I think, having traveled to Germany, there's incredible cultural respect for the system and huge, just kind of traditional backlash against anyone trying to get out of the system or you know, undermine the system or bemoan the system. Um, And there's a lot of new cultural norms that they've created from their experience there. Uh, You know, great response obviously to just a terrible uh, six or seven years there. But um, you know, how do we get there without that kind of pain, without that kind of historical lesson in our own country, right? Uh, God, I don't know. I don't have a great answer. I guess this is, Sorry, I feel like – never mind. I'm not supposed to have an answer. This is the stuff we're supposed to think about. You're supposed to go think about it. I'm, we're not supposed to think for you. There
3: we I, go. I think that's that's a perfect tie-in to what I'd like to leave with a couple of closing thoughts. You know, We started off by talking about how maybe we're seeing some demagogues today, perhaps, and people think that this is – Maybe. And people think that this is a problem. You know, I, I think what we are encouraging you to reconsider in this episode – is how the influence of demagogues may in fact be an indicator of a larger historical trend that we can look back to prior examples of and learn from. So we propose that one of these larger trends could be a lack of faith in the system, but that's just one interpretation yep. of it. So what what do you guys think out there?
1: Yeah, and if you want to get... If you want to leave us comments, we love hearing them. If you're excited about perhaps telling us uh, you, what you'd love to hear about, what you've got questions about, because that's usually what gets us chatty, is when someone says, hey, you know, tell, what's going on with this thing? We go, oh, yeah, this. Okay, well, let me do some research first. So that's fun for us. Uh, so if you've got any thoughts or comments, got any questions, got any episodes you want, you can write us. So that email again is stc at something to consider movement.com. If you want to leave a comment, uh, we also have like a email form, visit our website. If you're listening to this, say iTunes or something, our website is something to consider movement.com slash reconsider. And uh, we don't have a separate Facebook or Twitter page up yet. I'm sure we will at some point, but anyway, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Love to answer some stuff that you guys are curious about. And with that, Xander, anything else on your mind? That's what I got. Cool. So we'll see you guys next time with a topic to be determined. Uh, And going forward, remember, don't let the pundits or the demagogues think for you. Pause, reconsider. And this is Eric signing off. And
3: this is Xander signing off.
1: We'll see you next time on Reconsider.
0: Hold up. What was that?